Perfect buttons. Okay, good morning. This is Jeff Edwards. This is the KGOS KERM Lawn and Garden Program. I'm here this morning with Jerry Urshbeck in the studio. Good morning, Jerry. Good morning, Jeff. How are you today? Good, thank you. Did you have a good week? Absolutely. Excellent. Yeah, even got to watch the Thunderbirds uh, last Wednesday. Well, oh. two days ago. Oh, nice. Yeah. And had a good view, and they put on a spectacular show. Excellent. That, yeah, that, that's always a good thing to do. Never to. seen it. Uh, if if one has never seen it, it's it's I, a good thing to put on a bucket list. Highly recommended. Oh yeah, I, yeah. I've really enjoyed that. And if everything's working correctly today, we should have on the line with us Brian Sabati, uh, University Extension Educator from uh, Laramie. Good morning, Brian. Are you with us? I am here. Can you hear me all right? Yes, I think we can hear you okay. Okay, great. As compared to the last time you were supposed to be with us, that was an interesting uh, power outage day. <laughs> yeah, I was excited to be uh, on the on the call, on the radio program, and then, uh, yeah, there was no power, so we, we couldn't make it happen. So, glad to be here today. Excellent. So, uh, we're going to listen to a few words from our sponsors, and we'll be back in a little bit. Good morning once again. This is the KGOS KERM Lawn and Garden Program. I'm Jeff Edwards with uh, Jerry Gershebeck and um, Brian Sebade on the line with us today uh, talking about gardens, turf, trees, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Oh, we'll probably throw some pumpkins in today, I'm guessing. I, I could see it on, I could see Jerry working that direction. <laughs> I kind of had, a, had a, uh, a, a rambling moment last week about the pumpkins, and so maybe my thoughts are, might be a little more, more uh, together this week. More time. organized this week? Yeah. Okay. But I think what we'll do is, uh, Brian, we will start with you. Um, you know, uh, uh, last weekend... Uh, you hosted a, well, you were one of the hosts of a, uh, wasn't a garden walk, it was a, actually a nature walk up in Libby Flats, up in the Snowies, that uh, Diane and I participated in. Uh, first of all, we had a really good time, um, but do you, uh, do you guys, would you like to share with us, you know, the intent of that and uh, uh, what we were actually looking at and, and uh, what we were looking for? Yeah, um, so, you know, around Laramie, we usually have uh, native plant walks. Uh, we call them a plant ecology and plant identification walk. And really, it's just kind to kind of a, an opportunity for people to uh, get down low to the ground, learn some new plants. And one of the things that it helps us out with extension is just some good, um, you know, skills for, for identifying native plants. Um, it seems like, you know, with extension, I'll get uh, emails or calls and somebody says, oh, I've got this weed I want to try and kill, um, you know, end up going there, getting the picture, and turns out it's actually a native plant that's actually fairly beneficial to pollinators. Yeah. Maybe it's good for wildlife. So Yeah, yeah. exactly. So um, it's always good to, to get a bunch of folks together who may or may not know exactly what's going on and going out and taking a look at a lot of these different flowers. Right. And other yeah. plants, too. There was some grasses that we identified and some other things as well. So um, uh, it was a, it was a f really fun day. Um, Brian is correct. These are low-growing plants, uh, so you do have to bend over and really look at the details and or get down on your hands and knees and look at them. Uh, but it was a fun day. There were uh, Brian was harassing me a little bit. I'm, I'm not that much of a flower guy, but... Uh, I am interested in the insects and pollinators that happen to visit them, and I, ca I had a tendency to wander away from the group. 
Yeah, yeah, that that tends to happen. But uh, <laughs> uh, we we also did talk about um, a lot of those plants that we have at the Alpine Systems in Wyoming. Uh, people try to grow those in other places, and they aren't very successful because it's either too you know the soils aren't quite right. There's too much moisture, so there are quite a few plants that uh, Jeff and I were able to look at that are actually in quite a few gardens. And uh, and other it, well, and you mean other places? Uh, you, uh, I think Jenny mentioned that there are people from uh, Europe who right. co- come yeah. to the snowies and just stand there in awe that those things grow naturally, and they're trying to cultivate them. <laughs> yeah, they're at sea level with you know forty inches of precipitation or even more, and uh, yeah, so it's a little bit different. Yeah. So Brian, but you know, to your point, uh, you're. I don't know, I would guess 8,000 feet, and they try to put it down to 3,000 feet. Uh, temperature fluctuation as well, and that, that transportation process is hard on them as well, isn't it? Um, so a lot of them, they're, they're starting from seed, um, and so that's another challenge is starting a lot of these native seeds um, or starting plants from native seed. Uh, you know, you got to look about, uh, you know, getting them, through certain freeze cycles and just making sure that you're taking care of those. A lot of the the native plants that we have for garden beds are fairly easy, but some of these plants are a little bit more challenging for sure. And they're they're fascinating to go look at. There's just a lot, quite a variety. Uh, one of the things that Diane and I noticed after we took off and headed down the other side of the mountain is a uh, a hot pink flower that looked like. Um, uh, Indian paintbrush. Do you happen to know what that was? Uh, could have actually been Indian paintbrush. Uh, we have quite a few different varieties that are around, or different species, I should say. Okay. Um, but so aren't depending they depending on where you're at? Could have been. Yeah. Aren't they parasitic on sage? So they are semi-parasitic. Yes. Yeah. So basically, okay. they get part of their nutrients, uh, their water from other plants. Okay. Uh, so generally, in a sagebrush system, um, you usually see them. Uh, tied up with a sagebrush plant because those plants are really great at uh, harvesting water. Uh, but they can also be parasitic on uh, other species as well. Okay. Well, this these were, you know, we were at 10,000 feet, and these were just right up at the top, right over the uh, other side. So, But I didn't, I didn't stop the car and look at them close enough, which is probably my bad. <laughs> well, we'll just make guesses. So. <laughs> okay, yeah, right. Uh, send us a picture. <laughs> Um, what, so what else do you have going on in uh, Laramie, Brian? Well, you know, I uh, was thinking, you know, topics for today, and I thought, uh, you know, seeds for gardens is really important. Um, I was cheap this year. Um, Diane, your wife, had indicated she wanted some beets this year, so, of course, I set aside a big area for beets in my garden. Right, because, you know, uh, I, I won't grow them for her. You won't grow them. Um, we won't get into that discussion. Um, but uh, I used a bunch of old seed, and I had terrible germination. Yeah. Um, so I actually had to go through and, um, you know, replant, and I thought, you know, man, that's something I know every year, but I just, I you know, look through my bag of seeds, and they're there, so I plant them, and then I'm, you know, cussing myself a month down the road when they didn't germinate so right um, we, we have i think everybody probably does this you don't plant the whole packet then you start accumulating this uh seed library of things and uh uh you might get late in the w- w- since seed catalogs show up starting in th- at thanksgiving time we do either toss them or forget where we put them and and don't think about 
ordering our new seeds until the week before we're ready to plant, if then. And if that's the case, then uh, we go through that library of seeds and think, oh, this will work. Uh, but uh, I agree, Brian. We, Diane and I had the same issue with germination of uh, the things that we were trying to plant this year. And uh, we will be replenishing our seed supply next year. Yeah, yeah. The other the other thing along those lines is I save my bean seeds every year. Um, and, uh, you know, last year I kind of let them just sort of slowly die and almost rot on the ground. Uh, <laughs> I didn't get to them right away. Um, and I was also paying for it on my, my bean germination. Talk, as talk, well, about freeze, as well. talk about freeze-thaw cycles they had to put up with in Laramie. Right, exactly, yeah. <laughs> So when you're uh, when you're talking beans, you're talking dry beans. Um, just some some regular uh, bush style uh, green beans. For oh, okay. Fresh eating. So. All right. Yep. Sure. I, ha- I happened to run across a, a sack full of castor beans that, and I hadn't grown those for a that long are, time. That are not good for eating. Oh no, they're not good for eating. <laughs> they're good for looking at. <laughs> I got this piece of candy. It's not. It's not for chewing. It's just for looking at. Uh, but, you know, I thought about planting some of those, and I think the same thing, you know, germination would, would be crappy. It could potentially be. Yeah. Yeah. It's worth a try, though. You know, when you get a packet of seeds, it says... Uh, goodbye. Well, they well no, they don't have a goodbye date on them, or a use, best if used by date on them. They usually have a, a germination number, so they'll... They'll actually test the germ rate on a lot of these things, so it might be 92% by the time you get it, and it'll be dated. And so you kind of have to think, okay, well, this seed packet's five years old, and it was 92% germination five years ago. It's maybe 20% now. Plant them thick. (laughs) Right, yeah. (laughs) Exactly. Expect uh, Expect abundance and thin if you have to. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, uh, any other programs you have going on, uh, Brian, that uh, folks can attend or, or anything like that? Um, I don't have a whole lot that's happening. Um, I am thinking about trying to get a um, soils workshop that's really looking at alkali uh, soils. You know, if you've got those soils where you've got that white crust that's forming mm-hmm. types of salts, um, kind of in the process of figuring it out with schedules, but uh, um We'll hopefully be getting something uh, later on in August or maybe September. So um, okay. people want to kind of follow our schedule on our uh, website. We can uh, hopefully have that posted. Okay, we'll try to promote that here if we are aware of it and can. So yeah, okay. yeah, because there's a lot of folks even just east of Torrington that have that white crust alkali, and uh, it, it's really hard to to manage um, good crops in that kind of soil. Even knowing if there's a grass or anything that you can plant in it so it's not just total mm-hmm. open ground, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, so uh, wandering through my garden today, and, and Brian, you're welcome to chime in at any point in time, right? So, okay. Um, I uh, noticed a couple of things. Um, aphids on peppers that I'm going to have to try and take care of. Uh Pear slugs are showing up on cotoneasters, and somebody might say, pear slug on a, what what are you talking about? (laughs) So, uh, I know we've talked about pear slugs in the past on the program. They aren't actually slugs, they are sawfly larvae, but they look like slugs, little green slugs. And they defoliate, they uh, 
they um, skeletonize leaves. So uh, you might be going along just great, your plants are green and healthy, and then all of a sudden, particularly cotoneasters, they, they get into plums as well, plum trees. Uh, but you'll start to see uh, browning of the leaves, uh, you'll be able to start to see through them because they leave behind the veins when they're feeding. Uh, but they look like little green slugs, um, but uh, usually a carbaryl product, 7, or um, malath something in the malathion family will take care of them. Uh, fairly easy to control, you just kind of got to get after them. Our, our biggest thing is, I'm usually traveling this time of year and don't really notice it, and all of a sudden everything turns brown and Diane will say, hey, I think they're back. You need to go take care of them. <laughs> so, uh, sawfly are actually little wasps. Um, that, so it's their larvae that are uh, feeding on these uh, uh, leaves. Um, the, the aphids on the peppers. Um, oh, you know, if Donna was on the phone with us, she'd just say, uh, take a hose and wash them off. I kind of think that sometimes if you're in a garden situation and you do that, you're uh, spreading, possibly spreading them around and making your your uh, problem maybe a little bit larger. Um, so maybe something like a horticultural oil or an insecticidal soap uh, on them, and, and that would... Uh, start to eliminate them but it's one of those things that you need to reapply and you need to watch that if you're close to harvest time that you don't if it has a pre-harvest interval information on the label so that basically what I'm getting at is if you choose to use these products you need to read the label and understand that there's usually a time when you can apply it and then a resting period I guess we should call it between when you apply it and when you harvest it so that if there's any residue left behind uh, if you wash it, uh, it should be should be fine. And those are okay for the pollinators then as well. Uh, the two products that I mentioned. Yeah. Um, if you apply them when the pollinators aren't active, so in the evening or early in the morning, that would be best. You bet. Yeah. Yeah. So less toxic. Uh, m they're not traditional insecticides. So yeah. But the insecticide soap will still kill those aphids. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So okay. so w we think of a soapy product, right? Um, it actually will strip the waxy cuticle off of the aphids so that they will um, dehydrate and die. Yeah, they don't ingest that soap. Nope, has to get on them. On them. Yep, and there's some, so there are some other natural products. There's a, a fungal pathogen that is aphid specific. Um, I think it's bovina bassiana, something like that. It's one of those names that I haven't committed to memory yet, but you can... You can search for it and purchase that product, uh, uh, not necessarily locally, but you can find it on the internet. And if people are interested in that product, they can get a hold of me later today, and I can send them a link to where they can find that. Um, but there's a lot of different things. And and if people want to release natural predators, be a good time to do it. Uh, lady lady beetles. Um, uh, some of the other things that we've talked about on the program. The the um, Praying mantis. Praying mantis. Yep. Surfed flies, um, uh, lace wings, all of those things are commercially available that you can, and parasites, uh, purchase and release them. But if you release things, you have to remember you're releasing them into the. Into the wild. Into the all, uh, uh, everywhere. So if you uh, have things that you're trying to clean up and control, you need to cage that plant with those predators so that they're 
with that they're uh, actively working on it. And I'm not talking about a sophisticated cage. You can cover it up with some fabric, uh, uh, some really light cloth, and just for a couple of days. Yep, yep. What you're trying to do, if you if you do order predators, you usually get the adult stage. Uh, it just depends on what type. But um, you're trying to get lady beetles, for instance, to lay eggs so that their larvae don't fly away. And yeah. So we're seeing more praying mantis casings that have been uh, laid down on a surface. Uh, doesn't seem to matter what kind of surface these days. Uh, and it can be flat, it can be vertical, horizontal. It, they, they just seem to, we just seem to be seeing more of them ever since I've started having one of those, and what's the case called? Uuthika. Uuthika cases. And thank you. And uh, I haven't committed that to memory, but at least I know that there's a name for it. Um, and we're seeing more of those uh, come into production, so it's a it's a good thing. Yeah. So the uh, I think as um, you, you know, in a in a year like we're having now, where it's really humid, more humid than normal, these types of things will show up. There will be some different things that we see normally. I've been seeing a lot of praying mantis egg cases and nymphs as well so it's just one of those things um things are cyclical they show up they survive they start mm -hmm. to populate right brian do you see stuff like that over in laramie where, where the elevation's a little higher um well jerry i've got to first admit one i'm not a big insect guy um and i should tease <laughs> jeff for taking us down this road of insects um but uh, yeah, you should. Two, I, I i don't see a whole lot but again i'm probably not the uh the top expert, but I don't seem to see quite as many um, where I'm at in Laramie. So, just a little, little cooler, a little different environment, little, you know, fewer, fewer insects. So, uh, if there's less food, there's less insects. But you're a pollinator guy, though, right? Um, sure. I'd still leave that to Jeff. Oh, all, still, right. Uh, all right. Send those questions to Jeff. Yeah. <laughs> So uh, I did mention that I wandered away from the group a little bit, um, and Jerry had asked off mic if I had actually been seeing pollinators up on uh, up at Libby Flats at 10,000 feet, and there were uh, several bumblebees, there were several uh, native bee species that uh, I was seeing, but a lot of flies, and flies are good pollinators, so uh, it just kind of depends on the situation and where you're at, and you know the temperature was about 54, Brian, I think. Uh, it was a little, little cloudy, a little windy, and a uh, little, yeah. little rainy. So, um, right. uh, most of those pollinators are really active when the sun's coming out, and and uh, so uh, otherwise they hunker down. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, you know, I think there's, uh, you know, I when I was waiting for everyone to show up, there was a really big uh, bumblebee that came by. Um, it seems like there's becoming more and more interest with uh, pollinators at high elevation and how they move around and kind of the role they serve um, throughout the ecosystem. So um, it's kind of interesting side note for new research that's uh, getting out there. So Yeah, and, and so bumblebees are usually more active at lower temperatures than uh, what we think of as honeybees uh, or other native bees. So they're usually the first ones you're going to see on cool mornings. Okay. Okay, so uh, let's, um, I think we're at a point where we should take a break and uh, listen to our sponsors, and we'll be back in a few. Okay, we're back. This is Jeff Edwards. This is the KGOS KERM Lawn and Garden Program. 
Uh, if you call in today, we can't take your call on the line. We'll have to take it uh, uh, separate. Can't take it on the air anyhow. Uh, so we'll work through that. Um, Jeff Edwards, Jerry Urshabek, and Brian Sabati in Laramie. Brian, I know uh, last week you said that it uh, had f snowed three weeks prior to us being there. Or, yeah. or froze. So. Well, I don't know if it had actually froze, but we had some uh, some snowflakes that were coming down uh, the end of June. So, okay. Uh, so that does not uh, bode well for those warm season vegetable crops. So you're saying it's not zucchini season for you yet? Um, it is now. Um, oh, okay. It's not. Um, you know, the, uh, the warm season squash plants that I have, uh, in my garden are, are doing fairly well. So I've got some zucchini. Um, I also have some winter squash. Uh, so they're starting to take off. Of course, uh, being in Laramie, uh, some season extension is always great. Yes. Uh, so trying to keep things as hot as I can is, is the best. So basically I did not open the covers on, um, any of my season extension, uh, tunnels or anything. Um, until about uh, the end of June, beginning of July. Um, so, uh, Jerry's blown away by that. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, kept everything covered, um, but, you know, it did really well. Um, again, it's not a, a huge high tunnel like some of the, the ones uh, you'll see on bigger operations. Mine are smaller for a backyard, um, but, uh, you know, doing whatever I can to keep things as hot as possible is important. Now, Brian, I've, I've been told by some that that black plastic doesn't seem to work as well as clear plastic for increasing the soil temp. Have you have you seen that as well? Um, so I just have the the clear plastic over the top, so I can still let um, some sunlight in. But I have not experimented with black plastic. Um, we're actually trying to warm the soil uh, early on in the season before anything's germinating, so I'm not sure on that. I, I actually have, and so yeah. you, you are correct, Jerry. Um, if, if you use clear plastic, it allows that light to get through, and then it gets trapped underneath it, whereas the black plastic has a tendency, you're just working on radiant energy, so um, things will actually grow and germinate quicker under, let's say, weeds. Uh, under clear plastic than if you had put either uh, option out. So if you put clear plastic down, can you scald the weeds that are coming up? Well, let me share something that... Okay. <laughs> so, we always have a salad of weeds. Right? Yeah, well, so uh, a couple of weeks ago we did a, uh, a geodesic dome project in Guernsey, and part of that project is to, to get the plastic, and it's a 42 by 42 square sheet, so it's pretty good size. Uh, out in the sunshine and um, warming. warming so that we can stretch it and move it around and stuff. And uh, uh, we were at the school, and there is, well, by the time we left, there was a spot that was 42 by 42 in their turf that was needing a whole lot of TLC. So just in a matter of hours, uh, it totally nuked the uh, turf that it was laying on. Yeah. So I, I'm sure that the maintenance guys over there are cussing us uh, because we caused them work and I apologize for that. But to, to get back to you, can you solarize, solarize weeds or other plants? Yes, you can. Yeah, because yeah. I'm sick and tired of weeding. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm getting into that, uh, yeah, gardening is fun, sort of, except for weeding. 
yeah, I'll get to that later. Um, uh, so, and and now the things that are really prevalent are the things that you can't mow off successfully, right? So you're talking about prostrate knotweed. You're talking about um, uh, purslane. Uh, and our one of our favorites, uh, puncture vine or goat heads. You can't hit them with the mower. You either got to dig them or come up with some other method to get rid of them. And uh, so it's just, uh, it, it is that time of year. I haven't quite gotten to the point where I'm ready to give up and go, I'll get them next year, but we're getting close. <laughs> <laughs> I see my neighbor is out this morning. It, it's, it's, it was fairly nice and calm and uh, nice temperatures, uh, higher 60s. He was out spraying weeds, and uh, you always say that this time of year that you, you just do revenge killing and uh, but he was trying to spray some weeds, and um, they they are so abundant this year because of our moisture. Yep. And some of the seeds that are germinating as a result, uh, the goat heads can last up to seven years, I think, as as a seed uh, dormant seed bank. There. So so we really want to prevent them from going to seed again, right? Because right. if you miss that window, you're back to time zero yep. you got to start over, start over which is unfortunate um, a lot of weed issues in Laramie Brian um, yes depending on uh, you know where we're at what the setting is um, of course as usual there's always uh, <laughs> weeds to deal with um, seems like uh, Dalmatian toad flax has been kind of an issue um, a little bit for sure in Albany County but um, really becoming more and more of an issue in uh, Laramie County so over by Cheyenne and different places um, so, you know, kind of been keeping that on our radar uh, as far as kind of a local, regional area, I guess. So. so for those of us who are less familiar with Dalmatian toad flax, it's uh, been listed as a uh, noxious weed, right? So it needs to be controlled if you find it. Is that correct? Yeah, and it's kind of one of those that's tricky, Jeff, because um, it looks just like a snapdragon. Right. It has a very similar flowers, so it's, you know, really very beautiful. Um, and bright yellow flowers. Bright yellow. Um, yep. yep. Um, but yeah, it really seems to just take off, um, and once it gets established, it can be uh, kind of a booger to to get out of there. So is it um, a per, is it a perennial? It is. Yep. Okay. So once once you get it, you'll have it every year until you figure out what to do with it. And it's one of those things that you look at it and you go, "Oh, that's kind of a really pretty plant." I, you know, I, I don't know what it is, so I'm going to let it grow in my property. And then three years later, you have more of it than anything else. <laughs> so, right, yeah. <laughs> I've got a problem, and I've got a problem, and it's not Dallas. Yeah, so uh, I also saw some information posted on Facebook about a workshop that was done looking at, um, uh, um, uh, not pre predators isn't the right word, uh, biocontrol using beetles is that uh, in uh, in and around uh, Cheyenne were you part of that I was not um, but uh, um, the conservation district there and then Dan Takella with university uh, they've been doing some different projects looking at that um, trying to find some stuff um, obviously uh, with most biocontrols you know it's just going to kind of keep it in check right uh, hopefully prevent it from spreading um, but you know for our hard to reach areas and large areas um, definitely something to really 
um, hopefully get established and take care of some stuff. So Yeah, and, uh, you know, a lot of those, it, it, establishment is the key. A lot of those things, if there's not enough host plants there, they those predators, that, that's not the right word, but uh, the plant consumers, that's, they're, uh, uh, they just won't get established. They may not overwinter, so there has to be multiple releases of these types of things over time. And and a lot of these uh, invasives, um, if we don't get after it right away, it becomes less of an eradication program and more of a, okay, let's manage it to a population where it's not causing impact in the environment. Right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. We've seen mint do the same thing, take over. Uh, some, some of us are becoming disillusioned with the trumpet vine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's nice to grow, but uh, it, it's really aggressive and takes over and uh, crowds out other plants that you may want. And so it, when, when you have a, a plant that's flowering a, as a yellow, the, the yeah. toad, the toadstool. Toad flax, Dalmatian toad, toad flax. It, you know, people go, was that a weed or a flower? Well, it's both, but this is an invasive species. Yeah, right. And we really have to be on our toes because there's things can come through the waterway, things can come on equipment, those types of things. So uh, that's part of the reason why we have the check stations at the... Oh, were you not on I air? was not on the air. Oh, man. Gee whiz. So um, uh, a lot of the... Uh, I'm a silly goose. Uh, um, Thank you. A lot of invasives come through the waterways. That's why we have the requirement that all boats coming in and out of the state need to have their boats checked and that type of thing. So um, we're trying to eliminate these invasive pests from getting into the state. Oh, yeah, and my goldfish is just, hey, let's dump it in the Yeah, in don't the do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> I caught this. It's catch and release, but I'm releasing it somewhere else. I don't I, do that either. I think when I was in high school, I was out at Boyson Reservoir, and um, uh, which is near uh, Shoshone. Shoshone. Yep, in between. Uh, yep, in, in that area. And when the ice freezes, it's almost crystal clear. You can see... You can see straight through into the water, and there was a goldfish that was frozen in the ice. I don't know how <laughs> oh, it happened, man. but it's like, oh, that's not supposed to be here. Yep. <laughs> so those types of things happen. Um, so, Jerry, you have, uh, you know, you, uh, you shared with me quite a list of things that you, oh, what's the plant you brought in first? Oh, uh, you identified this as a mulberry tree, mulberry is it a bush or a tree? It can be either. Usually it's a tree. This is a tree, and uh, I found this over at my neighbor's, and we've lived there for some 30-odd-something years. And, of course, now the birds have been after my Mayday tree, which is a little dark purple berry, and now we see them graduating over to our neighbor's. And we looked at it, and I'm like going, what the heck is this? And it's a... Uh, it looks almost like a raspberry, yes, an elongated raspberry, and and uh, gee whiz, the birds like it. And Jeff, you said that the uh, you you can actually eat these. The berries are edible uh, when they're purple, um, and uh, a lot ripe, of uh -huh. yeah, a lot of other things like them too. So, uh, Brian, have you done anything with mulberries? Um, I have not. Okay, all right, and and I'm I'm suspicious that a lot of these types of things are not intentionally planted in our area oh, but, yeah, but moved in by birds yeah 
moved moved in out by birds. Yeah, right. Uh, moved around. Oh, one of the things I want to catch Brian on before we uh, wrap up today, which I know I don't know what time it is. We're getting close though, Brian. Um, you've been doing a uh, maple syrup project in the state of Wyoming that uh, I find fascinating. I think I would like you to spend a little time talking about that, if you wouldn't mind. Yeah, yeah. Um, so um, I didn't do any this year, but um, in years past, um, you know, Wyoming doesn't have a lot of maples. We have several, um, but the one that's most common is a box elder. Um, and and, we, and c- we complain about box elder bugs, so let's find a use for box elder trees, right? Yeah, so the bugs are attracted to the female trees, so there's male and female trees. Okay. Um, in Canada, the same tree is known as a Manitoba maple, but here we call them box elders. Okay. Um, Acer nagundo is the scientific name. Um, so they're kind of naturally here and there, um, usually in riparian areas. We see them quite a bit. Um, you know, in cities for plantings, they seem to kind of take over. Sometimes we'll see them as kind of just having a main trunk, one trunk, but then, um, you know, depending on where you're at, you'll see multiple trunks coming uh, out of the same growth point. Um, but depends, essentially depends what you're doing... The, depends on if the deer took them out early. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, or if somebody got it with a chainsaw or what's happening. Yeah. So, uh, um, but yeah, essentially just like you would do with a sugar maple uh, from the Midwest to the East Coast is um, you are looking for when that plant is moving uh, water and carbo- carbohydrates. Uh, from its roots up to its, uh, you know, stems and buds, um, and essentially capturing that water, um, well, that sap as it's moving up. Um, So usually for most of what I've done, you're looking to tap trees around uh, Valentine's Day. Okay. um, Something like that. Um, You know, February, maybe early March. Um, Basically drill a hole into the tree. Um, then any, you've got a any, bucket. Any particular diameter? Um, so usually you want to shoot for something that's about six to eight inches and up. Uh, um, in diameter? Uh, in uh, diameter, No, yep. the, the tree in diameter. Okay, but what size of hole do you drill into it? Oh, um, it's close to half an inch or so. Okay. Anywhere from three-eighths to half inch. And do, um, you, do you use a, trip, a, a traditional maple tree tap? Or, or um, how, how are you um, directing that sap out into your collection bucket? Yeah, so I've used the traditional metal ones. Um, I didn't buy the buckets because they're expensive, so I just use milk jugs. Um, you can also use plastic ones with plastic hose. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, on a big um, operation, you've got plastic ones or metal taps with hoses that all go to a certain spot. Usually, there's a vacuum um, that's sucking those to a certain, you know, reservoir. So, so that um, that traditional th- um, image that we have of a little old guy running from one tree to the next to empty his sap bucket into a big reservoir, really no longer exists. It's a bunch of trees planted where they are tapping them, and then they have plastic tubing running to a main port, and then they take the sap from there. Right. Right. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Um, unless, unless you're, you know, me in Wyoming doing this, and then yes, I am that little old guy running around. You are the little old guy. Yes, yes. exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um, but then basically from there, you know, once you have sap collected, it takes a lot of sap to make syrup. Um, 
you need to make sure and filter it a lot um, through the process. But basically what you're doing is boiling it um, to remove the water um, and just, you know, increasing uh, the amount of sugars that are in that liquid uh, to where you have um, you know, syrup. You're, you're, uh, you're, you're, you're not increasing them. You're not adding more sugar. You're, you're uh, condensing con- them. Yeah, you're concentrating, concentrating. them. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So, so what is the ratio, Brian, between gallons of uh, sap you must collect before you receive any uh, syrup? So it really depends. Um, depends on the year and how well the trees are. The tree yeah. time of year. Um, so anywhere between oh one to maybe up to like three or four percent sugar is what you have. Um, and then I forget. Um, at 66% sugar um, for a finished product. Um, I probably shouldn't throw that number out where everybody can <laughs> quote me. Um, but the, the main take-home with that is it takes a lot of sap to make a small amount of syrup. Um, so, you know, five gallons of sap, um, you're going to yield fairly low amount of actual syrup. So um, well, there's the, a lot less of... Less than a pint maybe, right? Yeah, um, for sure less than a pint, probably. Sounds fairly Um, labor-intensive for how much you get, and that's why syrup is fairly expensive. Yeah, so it's it's a little bit labor-intensive, Jerry. Uh, Part of it is just collecting it, putting it in buckets, and then the main thing is just sitting around waiting for it to boil down. (laughs) Um, I mean, you know, if you do a large amount, it's a whole day. Yeah, yeah. and depending on when you collect it and the type of tree and everything else, you'll get different grades. Um, so that's one thing is people always, you know, hear different grades of syrup. And people think that there's some sort of different process to get the different grades. And really it's just the timing of when that's collected. So grade A can compared to grade B, um, you know, you're going to get some darker ones, some lighter ones. Some people really like that darker one. I think, Jeff, you're more of the darker syrup. Yep, um, yep, grade B. Yep. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of the, the interesting part of that as well. So, Brian, um, for whatever reason, I always thought it was the sap going down and doing this in the fall of the year, but this is, even the big guys are all spring tappers? Yep. Uh-huh. Yeah, so you can tap trees like you would in the spring, but in the fall they have all these carbohydrates and different things, and so it's almost the color of um syrup sometimes depending on what type of tree i don't know if anybody's ever you know punched a hole in a tree in the fall um but i remember i was on a project one time in college and uh we were coring trees to get ages of cottonwoods in the fall is about oh october time uh close to november and this brown nasty looking liquid came out um, and essentially um same process was happening but it's taking all the energy back to the roots so um the stuff you probably don't want so it's probably a whole lot less sugar it's more carbohydrates because you're trying to feed the root over the winter right Right. yeah so um it might it would be very difficult to clean that up clean that fluid up that comes out that you would collect in the fall yep yeah yep um and we have more information on this um i've kind of done a little article on barnyards and backyards uh, dot com. So um, there is an article to get you going if you are curious about doing this. So one one last question then on that: When you boil it, do you do you use like a cast iron 
pot or container or high heat, low heat? Um, so basically some sort of container and just boiling it uh, to get the, the water out of there. Huh. So whatever, whatever you need to use. Um, you know, you can use the big cooking pots that you'd see in a commercial kitchen, uh, you know, those burners that you have for camping. Um, you know, those work really well. Um, just basically whatever you can find is best. Uh, once things get really concentrated, I kind of like to finish things on a uh, stovetop. Um, and essentially what you're doing is watching the temperature. Um, and when you've raised that temperature enough, uh, basically things are kind of starting to burn. Um, and then you go by temperature to figure out uh, when you have a finished product. That you don't want to scald it or, or turn it into uh, candy, right? Right, exactly. Yep. <laughs> caramel. Yeah. Because, <laughs> I mean, you know, making caramels is essentially the same process, but uh, we want this to be nice, tasty syrup. Yeah, exactly. Yep. yep. So, something to do with the um, trees that are that we may think that aren't useful, right? Yeah. yeah. Right. Now, there's a, isn't there a silver maple? There a, are, yep. Could you Not tap? Not native to Wyoming but there are yep so um, any kind of maple you could tap um basically the best ones are the the sugar maple um and then the Manitoba or maple or box elder yeah interesting so, um, yeah. some of the different varieties um do not produce a, a syrup that's the same so interesting so Thank you, Brian, for sharing. I, I know that's kind of not lawn and garden, but it's fascinating stuff. I, I think so. Jerry, I want to shift gears and give you the floor for your your organized thoughts about pumpkins. Okay, so pumpkins now, uh, we've, uh, we've come into this uh, area now that you have to manage some of your vines. Uh, last weekend we pulled our, our buckets, carefully pulled our buckets, buckets off of the plant because we were protecting them against wind shear and then we put a bunch of dirt on the main vine soil soil over the main <laughs> vine and tried to start directing the vine in the direction that we're really wanting and the available space uh, pumpkins usually will put off uh, several different vines one the first the mother vine or the primary vine uh, then off of that primary vine you can have secondary vines and then you can have tertiary vines so it looks kind of like a Christmas tree and so you really want to cut off the tertiary vines and just grow your pumpkins on the main vine or on the on the primary vine primary or secondary vines so uh, under each leaf juncture you can put dirt you can put soil. soil, sorry, you can put <laughs> soil, compost, or any kind of nutrient over the top of that, and it will grow more roots on that leaf juncture that will take up more nutrient. And uh, taking up more nutrient is what you're all about when you're trying to grow a giant pumpkin. And pretty soon, I mean, if once your vine gets to be about 10 to 12 feet, you can start seeing that there will be uh, male flowers come up and female flowers will join in the in the fray later on the males will show up first they're a tall 
standing um, flower. They usually have a stem or a stalk on them before stem the flower stalk, develops, right? And it'll come up about eight inches or so and then produce a flower. And uh, the female flower will first start with a little uh, engorgement, enlargement. Uh, looks like a small balloon, if you will, with a flower on top of that. And that is actually going to be your pumpkin. Uh, the fruit is, is uh, uh, pollinated when it gets to be larger than a volleyball. Uh, you can actually take the male flower and peel off the sides of it, exposing the stamen. The petals. The petals off of, this, off of the side and exposing the stamen and insert that into the female flower and pollinate uh, your pumpkin, especially if you're wanting to save pumpkin seeds for another future use. If you've bought a $25 pumpkin seed or a $50 pumpkin seed, you may want to think about uh, keeping the genetics a little more pure and um, uh, otherwise you just let the pollinators go after it. Uh, you can plant uh, coleus or not coleus, um, uh, you can plant flowers that will actually produce uh, enough pollen that bees and flies and stuff will get into it and then visit your pumpkin plant and pollinate your flowers. And then you have to pick out which pumpkin you want to keep. So you don't want to grow, you know, 20 pumpkins on your giant pumpkin vines. You want to grow one or two and have at it keep watering <laughs> keep people away from your pumpkins with with uh, cigarettes and don't tramp on the soil <laughs> so sorry there you are sorry to force you to oh, wrap up jerry we've wrapping drifted up. we've drifted over the <laughs> nine o'clock hour i have i, I want to thank brian for being with us today uh appreciate you being here and sharing your wisdom with us brian yep thank you okay Pleasure. all right and uh jerry Thank you. Next time, I'll try to give you a little more time to oh, no, jump into I, your story. Oh, no, I love this, this, this pressure. It makes me think faster. <laughs> and I have a final thought. Uh, zucchini is considered a gift, not a curse. Oh, yeah, and you should be gracious. <laughs> <laughs> All Thank right, you. All right, everybody, we'll see you next week. <laughs>